This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Sam Biko, the illustrious host of this week's episode and also an author of young adult fiction. Her next book, Children of the Bloodlands, is book two in the Realms of Ancient series, which will be out September 25th, wherever books are sold from ECW Press. Attention, citizens! It's time for Super Pulp Science! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Super Pulp Science, the podcast where we talk about how genre gets made. I am not Gregory Kamichuk, nor am I Justin Curry, but... Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am their boss, and they tagged me in this week, much to their detriment. So today, I'm going to be running the show. Thanks for having us, Sam. You're welcome, Greg. Uh, he sounds a little, his voice sounds a little watery and uh, scared. That's because they are now hostage. Uh, so, <laughs> How do we get out, Justin? Can the two of you introduce yourselves? For our uh, listeners? Sure, I'm Gregory Kamichuk. I write and illustrate uh, books and comics. And I'm Justin Curry. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I run Chasing Artwork. I do uh, digital paintings and a little bit of publishing as well. A little bit of publishing. And some uh, movie previs occasionally. And some movie previs occasionally. Just repeat exactly what he says. <laughs> Everyone wants to hear it twice. Yeah. Um, so Everyone wants to hear it twice. Every week, Greg says that Justin is the long-suffering co-host, but the reality is I'm sitting in the background for all of these, and it is me who is suffering, and this week it will be you two who are suffering. Oh, my God. I'm not ready for this. Okay, I'm moving over here so we have a united front. What are we going to talk about Greg today, was Sam? very nice and got me a coffee this morning. Also his mistake. He had to go to uh, two different coffee shops to make because, that happen. Because I am high-maintenance. She needs soy milk. So uh, the two of you, um, I want to ask you uh, how your week has been going. Because actually behind the scenes, a lot of things you haven't been talking about on social media have been unfolding. wondered if you could uh, delve into the magical creative day-to-day of what's been happening to you lately. Oh my God, go first. So, yeah, because I, I don't have nearly as much to talk about well, as I don't as know, there's a lot of duck business um, happening on your end. <laughs> it's an <laughs> owl. <laughs> It's an owl. That's right. There's a duck involved, but it's an owl. So I have been, um, I am in a little bit of a Comic-Con lull right now. My June is fairly quiet as far as shows go until June 23rd, 24th is the fan quest here in in the city. Um, But prior to this, I had like five Comic-Cons back to back to back. And those five weeks, you know, every weekend I'm in a different city. And the days leading up to that, I've been preparing for those shows. So suddenly I find myself with like, actual time to get work done and it's almost like overwhelming because I have so many options of what I can be working on right now. Um, My only project uh, that I have for, the only client project I've taken on this year really has been Ollie and the Missing Who's, a book I'm working on with um, Susan Wolf and that is coming to a close this week. We uh, we just went through like our final batch of changes and I'm at the point where uh, I like this part of the book as I'm working on a book, I'll, uh, I'll kind of build my files in Illustrator, and I just take screenshots and plop them in the book as just kind of holders as we finish, finish everything up. But as a final step, I open up every single native file, and I go once over, and I just do some fine-tuning, and then I output that final file and do the color corrections, and it's kind of like um, filling up the book from scratch. That's you right. Know? Um, and so just to kind of talk to our listeners a bit about your background in doing kids' books. Uh, so you, you've done Cassie and Tonk and Rust and Water with Greg. And those books are, act, they are they're formatted like a kids' book, but they're also, they have frames and panels like a comic or a graphic novel. Um, the book that preceded Ollie and the Missing Who's was Quackers Learns to Fly. Same. Wants to Fly. Oh, sorry. Quack, I'm looking at it right now. It's literally right behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quackers Wants to Fly. Um, and it's like a very classic traditional children's book where it's just an illustration per page or so and yeah. then the text integrated into it. Is your process different for this kind of format than it was for, say, Cassie and Tonk or Rust and Water? Um, not, not as much... Why are no. you nodding? You don't know, Greg. I think it's, um, it's simpler story beats, right? So in... Cassie and Tonka Rust and Water, there's, you know, a couple things happen per page. But in the kids' book, it's usually, you know, it's one thing happening on a page. And that was uh, when I originally got this script, that was a little back and forth. I, I had kind of um, informing Sue of, of the best way to do it. She would, 
the the first script had the the friends of the pond doing a lot of things per page and for it to be most effective it kind of has to be one story beat per page right. so there was there's a lot of back and forth at the beginning to make it um you know cohesive we want to see all the friends of the pond doing things as a team mm -hmm. and originally it was kind of them all going off on their own little mini adventures which meant for me i would have to draw a scene for every single one of those five characters doing every one of those five actions and that would have turned into either panels mm -hmm. or way too many pages for sure yeah yeah and you also have a really neat kind of relationship with these books because it's not like susan has just come to you and it's just like i'm hiring you and then that's it you don't have anything to do with it you have way more input that is because how it started that's though. how it started yeah mm -hmm. i was that was um one but of my very first so much you bought the company <laughs> Um, Susan originally contacted me through a printer that had printed uh, another project I'd worked on. Um, she was an author looking for an illustrator. Um, they connected us. We, we clicked. Uh, we really liked working together. Oh, hold on just one sec. This episode of Super Pulp Science has been brought to you by Steel Doors because these two don't want to have anything that's in the studio stolen. I wish we had some like proper gift to present. You have all these posters. This episode is also brought to you by Italo, a very good maintenance man. <laughs> he is super good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super conscientious. Okay, yeah, we Justin, why didn't, you, why didn't you know last week when the roof man was coming? Also, yeah, that's that's on you. That's I, on you. That's on me. Yeah, I was couple hours too late on that one sorry what was i talking about um the, sue me and sue you're working together yes now. so how on can you tell me wants to die what so yeah <laughs> as a side note it's really hard to work on age-appropriate books in this studio with gregory kamichuk whispering twists and turns yes he has a penchant for turning beautiful yeah. innocent tales into like nihilistic Listen, murder spirals what i all i'm doing is i'm trying to see if your intent is pure <laughs> and if you can handle a slight deviation in the plot tossed at you and still stay on course right. anyways if so. you get if you say to yourself yes it should be a book about dark and twisted endings where the duck cannibalizes his friends. Then that's okay. your fault. Okay, all right. That's anyway, Justin, duck back do eat, to <laughs> ducks do eat their own. That's wow. true. That was this. That was the secret Ducktales show that never got aired. <laughs> the zombie, <laughs> the zombie episode. Yeah. A sea monster ate my ice cream. A sea monster ate my ice cream. A sea monster ate my ice cream. We we originally went through a publisher. Um, and it was kind of my first experience with, with a publisher. Um, and things really didn't go super great with uh, just the distribution and the printing. Um, and it was just, it was a little bit of a disappointment end to such a fun project to work on. Uh, fast forward a couple years later, we, we, the, uh, the rights from the publisher came back to us. We were able to reprint and self-publish. And because now I have uh, experience book touring and, and doing Comic Cons and kind of um, doing a bit of distribution on my own, uh, I was able to take Quackers into my self-published library. And so now that I knew how, how that could do just under my own steam, I was eager to jump into the next book in the series um, with the plan being me print and me distribute uh, with maybe a publisher down, down the line, but we're kind of happy to sell the book ourselves. So it's kind of nice not having any boss at the end of the project it's just sue and i doing what we know is the right thing to do and uh knowing exactly where it's going to go and how it's going to get there which is just through us so that's beautiful it's such a happy ending it is and we're going to do a third it? book as well it's going to it's going to be three books at uh at the end of the day um the third one is about gertie the goose isn't it i think so yes the bird yeah. trifecta what about the dragonfly? I really want one. I'll just, I'm just going to phone up Susan and be like, listen, you should do one about the bee. And, it, all the pro and some of the proceeds should go to saving bees. I'm and telling you. And you'll make a lot of dollars, Sue. It'll be a bonus book. 
be more work for you. What if you re- you should write that? Oh no, Sam. Oh no, I'm not touching <laughs> Susan's actual property. She's a lovely woman. She will come after me. <laughs> See, it always ends in some twisted murder plot. Yeah. Um, you guys are monsters. That's all I have to say. Oh yes, so. earlier yeah. today when I came into the studio, I was trying no, to tell Greg tell about my stories. wonderful. Okay, we have past- to edit all this out. Too. I was telling Greg about my wonderful pastoral experience yesterday, and he turned it into a murder plot. Not not only a hypothetical one, but one he wishes he were a part of. Okay, it's not my fault, dear listeners. Anyways, how's your is week the reason been? Why everything is turned into a horror movie? It's because. Uh, uh, later this month, I'm going to be uh, on set uh, shooting. Well, I won't be shooting. I won't be directing. Mike Sanders will be directing it. A little short horror, f- little ho- horror film we're doing as a short, little two-day shoot. And then there's a very strong chance later this year we will also be shooting a horror feature, which we've had to put together in a really short span of time. <clears throat> so there's been a lot of murder brainstorming, mm-hmm. um, fictional murder brainstorming uh-huh. um, that uh, has kind of permeated other facets of my work-life balance. So as somebody in the comics and publishing world who would like to get into movies, how, how did you make that transition? Uh, oh, yeah. By saying no to an email. Oh. I, I got an uh, email from a movie producer said, would you like to look at a, look over a script for me? Because they were familiar with your graphic they novels. They were familiar with my graphic novel work. And, uh, dear listener, I get a number of requests uh, fairly regularly for reviewing people's scripts and works to give, you know, what amounts to a whole bunch of free feedback. And if we know each other and we've been, you know, cordial in the past, I'm pretty happy to do that. Um, it's fun for me. But if you're a complete stranger hoping to take some of my working time away or my family time away, I usually say no or I add a caveat that, yes, here is my day rate. I'll review your script for a whole day. This is what it will cost you. So I had sent that sort of no-go-away email, and instead they were happy to pay for that day rate, and that started a conversation on one project that led to a conversation about another project that led to a conversation... um, the what else have you got conversation which which, is the conversation we all want from somebody in the movie industry right yeah it's it's you know it's a pretty cool thing and now um i will add the caveat that this is um not in the uh deadpool category of filmmaking but more in the blair witch project category of filmmaking like we are not you know someone did not arrive with a dump truck full of money they arrived with the capacity to produce a feature-length film with a professional crew in a very short span of time in a closed location and could we come up with an idea that worked um it's pretty wild and i'd love to do a whole podcast on all of the do you see this as a with the step- people involved. We'll bring them all on the show. Do you see this as a stepping stone or a one-off? Um, well, what, the, what do you want it to be? Of course, the long-term goal would be to say, hey, this producing partner is really great to work with. Hey, they really liked what we did. Could we do it again? Um, there's a sweet spot in filmmaking. Uh, myself and a number of people uh, who I've worked with for a few years at Electric Monk, I believe, where... The glut, all the extra money that goes into a lot of films could be better spent in different ways. And we've been working hard to create a framework that would allow for that. Um, And this is going to be us putting our literal money where our mouths are to see if we can pull it off. So it can be fairly nerve-wracking to write under a deadline, but not just write. Writing under deadline is fine. I actually really enjoy that. But iterating a number of different ideas under a deadline where you have to um, sort of be married to it only for the few hours, like really be passionate about your idea and then turn that passion off and start over again. And you'll be working with a team of writers or will you be working kind of on your own, drafting ideas, sending them through, developing them? Like what's the process for this and how does it differ from your comics writing? Okay, so right now um, it would... So in... In graphic novels, I normally will figure out the script beats and then write the script and then produce the So you the write the outline, itself. then yeah. write the script, and yeah. then storyboard? And then I do storyboard. So that's like my normal process. For this, 
um, we would have what's called a story by credit. So we're coming up with the treatment, the beat sheet of all the essential um, actions and elements within the film. Which and is 10 to 15 pages. Yeah, 10 or 15 yeah, pages. Normally. All the key moments of dialogue are all in there. And then we pass that off to a scriptwriter who then uh, pounds that out Fleshes into 80 out. or 90 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, a page a minute is the rough uh, equivalent of page to screen. Okay. Uh, which is why it's formatted a specific way. Gotcha. Right? All that weird formatting is yeah, so yeah. that it adds up. Roughly equivalent to a page a minute. Fun fact. Fun film facts, ladies and gentlemen, on Super Pulp Science. It's too bad we can't sneak a look at the Watcher Diaries and read up on Angel. I'm sure it's full of fun facts to know and tell. And on top of all of that stuff, I also uh, ran into, well, not ran into, came to the realization of where I was standing on a different project, is that I was having, um, you know, it's like the aforementioned notion of the creative difference. Um, so I was working on a project for a publisher and I realized that uh, style and content are two very different types of criticisms you can receive over the work. And I realized that a whole bunch of things that were being misconstrued as content changes were actually style changes. And after two months of working on a project, I had to go to the uh, managing editor and say, you know, I am the wrong, clearly the wrong person for this. Everyone is trying to make this work and I've been working hard to make it work, but we all have to agree that these changes, they're asking for a different style. It's the art that bothers them, not the content, Mm -hmm. because I've changed all the content to match exactly what's been asked for a number of times. And so really you have to talk to this uh, writer and get them to, search their soul and realize that I'm the wrong artist for this project. Which is, that's kind of, I find that surprising because at this point in your career, like at a certain point in your career, people start hiring you for your style. For your style. So to be working with somebody where your style is the problem, that seems like a, a big misstep. Yeah, it, was, it felt like a misstep, but you know, it's partially because I broke my own rules. Um, I have some pretty good rules that have served me low these many years. And, and I thought maybe just this one time. And so those <laughs> rules, dear listeners, are pretty straightforward. Uh, you should only work on long projects with people you've at least met once in person. Um, you should know what kind of person they are. Not that, you know, there was any problem specifically with this individual, but just that we didn't have that chance to meet and know each other very well. And so um, we didn't have open lines of communication and open lines of communication are essential. Um, There was a go-between between between the publisher and the author. I don't like working that way either. I want to talk to them directly about changes. Um, And there was a uh, uh, specific agenda to the story, uh, which I think makes the story a better story that I wasn't aware of until later on in Mm -hmm. the process. So all of these things... Um, are the reasons why I'm not a good fit for that project. So on top of having like one opportunity where like, hey, your creative vision is what we want. Come and do this. Give us lots of ideas. You know, we value you. you we want you. That was one side of the week. And on the other side of the week, it was like realizing, no, I'm the ro- absolutely the wrong person. My creative vision is mismatched, that this is not a good place for me and not a good fit. So Now, that kind of perspective um, is a very... It's something that maybe, and this is just subjective opinion here, has taken you, you know, several years of working collaboratively to make the decision to step out because I know a lot of artists are just like, I'm just, I'm going to have to stick it through because I have a contract, because opportunities are very thin on the ground and I'm just developing, um, developing my career. So for you, you know, you're very established in your career and you have a very varied body of work. Um, how many, how many years did it take to develop the ability to say no to something like this? Um, I've been in a very unique position because um, I had another job that I also loved. Mm-hmm. So when I was teaching, you know, I spent 10 years as a teacher. That gave me a solid foundation financially to say no to lots of projects. I turned down... Which especially, yeah, especially starting out, you mm-hmm. don't say no to anything, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I turned down three to five projects a year that just, to me, 
if I was going to do it in the margins of my life, because I had a full-time job, I had to like really want to do it. I had to really love it, or I had to really like the people I was working with, or I had to say to myself, I can learn so much from this collaborator that it would be foolish to say no. Um, and having met them, oh, I like them too. So not only can I learn, but I like them, and we can move forward from that. Cassie and Tonk was one of those. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of been a default setting to be able to say no to projects that I don't think fit. So the difference for this one was I didn't have that foundation. You know, I am mm-hmm. full-time writing don't and illustrating now. Net, essentially. So that net isn't there. So I had to look hard at the contract and say, okay, based on the contract, what I might have to do is give the advance back, <clears> is <throat> give the mm-hmm. uh, page rate I've been paid up till now back in order to make everything okay. And so I had to say, is the money worth damaging the relationship with this publisher moving forward mm-hmm. and the answer is, of course is no it's not worth that yeah i'd rather give all the money back and keep that relationship intact i'd mm-hmm. rather have them hire a different illustrator i'd rather yeah. them have a project that works on the deadline that they need with the person getting what they want because i really you know uh the great ladies and equally important um, in maintaining those relationships is also maintaining your own peace of mind in that, you know, you don't want to be stretched too thin on something that you're kind of pushing yourself and forcing yourself to make work um, because time for you, especially because you're very busy and you have a lot of projects on the go is a, an extremely valuable resource. And once you run out of it and once you get so stressed out that you can't do your basically pouring all of your energy into this one project you can't do any of the other ones well and and i think the indicator for me was um and you know maybe this is useful to other people the indicator for me was every time i would send work that i was confident was good it might need to be changed you know 10 or 15 percent in one direction or another um it would come back as being completely wrong like that was the feedback so if, shake your confidence a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah, and it's not just about confidence. It's to say that if I think it's maybe ten could be changed ten or fifteen percent, and they think it needs to be changed a hundred percent, you're the wrong person for that job, mm-hmm. right? Um, they are <clears throat> sticking with it because they have a contract. I'm expected to stick with it because I have a contract. But at a certain point, it costs everybody too much time for sure. to be worth the money. So why not find somebody that? fits better Mm -hmm. and this was not like it was not a decision I made lightly yeah and I didn't phone up anybody and like quit no and this and this isn't the time either to become confrontational or defensive or egotistical I I called up the the managing editor and and explained exactly like I said I think it's it's con it's a not a content problem it's a style problem and what do you think you know do I need to try to adapt to a different style? Will that help? No, that doesn't look like it's going to help. No, you agree that that's not going to help. And what's the best move forward, given the amount of time we have to finish the project on deadline? Do you think replacing me is the better answer? And, you know, that was the decision that we came to together. She, yeah, the, the person on the other end of the phone also saw this going on, right? Yeah, it wasn't kind at, of out of nowhere. Yeah, was she was she, doing a good job. She was yeah. good at her job, and she's managing a lot of people who are and a lot of moving parts. And she was trying to make the best out of a uh, awkward uh, working situation. And I think from her perspective, the fact that I wasn't going to have any hurt feelings over it, I think made it a lot better because she also knows that I have other projects with that publisher and we're doing other things together and you know if it becomes a thorn then yeah. it'll be a thorn in everyone's side forever remember it's about compatibility it's a dialogue not a fight but I'm not gonna dial down my moves okay then neither will I why um why are you taking on projects like this instead of just doing your own thing under your own steam? Because you're at the point now where you can just kind of do your own stories and self-publish them and get them out there without anybody's help. <sighs> so why are you taking on somebody else's story and, and making that happen instead of doing your own thing? So we call this model, dear listeners, hybrid publishing, where you aren't just solely leaning on your income from either contracted work or personal work. You're doing both. Why are you doing that, Greg? Um, I'm doing that because I love books. 
I believe in these different publishers and I believe that there is something for me, something personally for me as an artist and writer to gain through the collaboration that I will come out the other end better at what I can do for myself. So I say yes right now to creative projects that help me flex a muscle I know needs work. Um, and things that are outside. So, you know, I did this book for, um, uh, I did the medicine book, you know, I'm doing the work with Portage and Maine. Uh, and those works are more socially conscious. And that is not typically the area in which graphic novels sit in the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And some of the projects that I want to do uh, moving forward in my own work, I want to have a bigger voice to talk about some bigger things. And so this allows me to partner with people who are, you know, bravely in that arena and train with them a little bit on the sands, right? Watch how the blood gets spilt and watch how the crowd reacts. Because it's very different in that space than in um, typical comic space. If you offend somebody in how you have portrayed Batman, right? There's not much really at stake, but their fandom. But yeah. fandoms, right, are immortal, if you will. But if you're talking about a real human issue, uh, there is there is real growth to be gained in the furthering the conversation and some harm that can be done by mm -hmm. getting the conversation pointed in the wrong direction. Now, and this is something that you kind of want to go into more, Justin, because most of your work has been creator-owned, the majority of it in terms of your books. You guys have put all the money towards not only producing the books, but distributing them yourselves. Mm -hmm. But you do have in your little trunk a bunch of pitches that you want to get together to, you know, kind of approach traditional traditional publishing and um i know that for you like you, we you and i have had these conversations where you're like oh but you know um you there's so much cut that comes from a distribution it's a completely different deal it's your own ip and you're kind of protective of your ip because you know personally you can hand distribute it and do very well with it so what to you um from your perspective is a benefit of reaching out to traditional publishers to take on your ip I think at uh, at this point, more so than than a couple years ago, I now I have kind of the the back catalog or the library to prove that um, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if I were to be sending out pitches um, before having my own graphic novels out, they probably wouldn't trust me to do this project on my own. They'd bring other people <coughs> in. But at this point, what I'm kind of hoping is because I've I've published a couple of my own books and and they're okay books, I think. They're okay. <laughs> They're okay. They're okay. Some of them um, are only in their second printing, but yeah, go yeah. on. <laughs> um, that publisher will um, greenlight some of my own ideas and just help out with getting that distribution much, much wider mm -hmm. than I could. Because when it comes down to um, like dollars and cents, I know how much work it takes to make a book, print a book, and then I know how much I can make <laughs> off of it now. And like comparing that to um, the traditional yeah. publishing route, it's the the self pub like what I'm doing is is better. So, dear listener, if you're confused by this, why Justin would not want to, you know, have his books in every Barnes and Noble um, and Chapters Indigo for those Canadians who are yeah. listening. Um, versus taking them to shows himself, uh, it comes down to the economics of how a typical publishing deal works these days for the average person. And yet 10 years ago, this distribution model that I'm talking about, the comic cons and trade shows was non-existent. I didn't, I could never have gotten access to this amount of people with my, my books years mm -hmm. ago. But now there's, uh, yeah, I'm in a different city every weekend, right. surrounded by thousands and thousands of people um, that, you know, hopefully enjoy my work. And, mm -hmm. and there's a different economy at play here, too, because, you know, illustrators, um, you know, I'm sorry, writers, but it, it's easier to write in the edges of your life. But if you're trying to finish a book on time for illustration, it's a full-time job. And so if you're not getting a page rate for those pages... Uh, which most publishers, um, you know, aren't giving. Mm -hmm. They just want you to 
give them a finished manuscript. That's exactly it. Right. And, then um, um, you are laboring for an entire year, and then the uh, traditional publisher will say, "Thank you. Here's a, an advance of between five, maybe, and ten thousand dollars. That would be a generous. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not worth the time that." you put in and a promise of royalties that won't come 12 until 12 months or um you know within the royalty cycle of when your book is put into the schedule right um so it's not it's not a reliable income it's not a reliable yeah when you compare that to the hundreds and hundreds of hours of work yeah Yeah. i mean some publishers they pay out every 12 months some of them pay out every quarter it's uh they all all have their different payment models um um we're so this Dear listener, is why you see so many authors have 5, 10, 15 books under their belt while they still have a regular job um, because they're building up their back catalog to the point where it pays regularly um, and predictably enough that they can say, ah, yes, now I can afford to be a full-time writer. Um, That's if you go traditionally. If you have the capacity, the willpower, the physical ability to visit lots of cities and take your work to those and cities. And the domestic flexibility. And the domestic flexibility, yeah, that's a Let key. us not forget our Let, long-suffering families. That's right. Um, then you have a capacity to earn a far greater return on each book. You know, it's selling one book at a table is like selling five or six to a distributor. Now, however, if you do both approaches and you are already going to all of these shows and you've built up your own... Um, following publishers see that as a high return on investment because you've already built up your platform you're not they won't look at you like justin is saying as a brand new zero platform unrecognizable entity they look at you and they say oh you know he has a very large following not only on social media but they are just climbing over themselves to get the gundams um (laughs) that sounds like such a cutting insult a zero platform is that like do publishers sit around and like put you in the zero platform well the thing category? is here is that's the hurtful. here is the publisher perspective because that's where i've been working for the past eight years they look at any author they acquire as an investment because everything that they are doing is an absolute risk they are paying you know to lease your ip for thousands of dollars and if you are brand new they have no idea how that's going to do they are just looking before you print the actual book, before you've printed the book before you've even pitched it to your sales team so you have absolutely no idea what your sales team is even going to say that's why a lot of publishers um, who are a lot older they get more comfortable taking on newer properties because they have experience with like properties with um, or like brand new authors who are very similar and they know how to pitch you to their sales team. So they are taking a risk. They are fronting money on, on a horse that might not win the race or might not even place in the race. Uh, but they believe in the work and they believe that it can be a good investment for them. So you know, there is that kind of aspect of, oh, you know, the publisher is sitting around and they're judging me. But if they look at you and they see that you have a following, then they will feel more comfortable. Certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus. Better selling than 53 More Things to Do in Zero Gravity. And more controversial than Ulon Kalufin's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? I have a question for yes. um, somebody who's been working on that side of the, the publishing world. Um, if you get, like, what's, what's the percentage of success, what's the success rate of a typical publisher? If they're yeah, getting 100... The return on investment there. Yeah, like, they take on 100 authors with 100 books. How many of those make the money and how many of them lose money? Like, it, Yep. Uh, there is no algorithm. There's no algorithm. What's, what's <laughs> typical? I'm just I'm Otherwise, trying to get the publishers would always be successful. What's typical? Um, yeah. wow. It also depends on how they're gauging success. If they're gauging success, making the that, money back on investment, even if they've just broken even or that you've earned back your advance, they consider that a success. Okay. And they and you know some of these advances are a thousand dollars, two thousand, five thousand. If you've earned that back through book sales, they consider that. Um, a success. And most of them will put into their contracts that they're happy for you to pitch to them their next book, your next book first, because they want to build up your brand uh, to be a part of their brand. So that's why a lot of publishers will take on series. Um, But yeah, it is all touch and go. It's kind of like, did this book win an award that we submitted it to? And uh, or did it even get nominated? Did it just have a really good um, public response? Or like some like, I am not a typical author also. Um, I'm published by ECW Press and they 
we have a really great relationship because I invest a lot of time in doing going to shows and pitching myself and doing a ton, a ton of work on my own that they don't put the money into. They just kind of, oh, Sam's doing something. We'll retweet it. Um, but And I don't sell hundreds of thousands of books, but I do sell thousands and they consider that success. And I earned out my royalties within the first four months awesome. because I do a ton of work. I don't have an enormous platform like you do, Justin, because we're in different... Um, we're in different kind of places. Like I'm young adult teen fiction and you're very like, on, got your finger on the pulse of, of the art world. Well, yeah, we kind of, the unfair advantage, like people can tell if they like my stuff in a half second, but they right. have to invest they have to, to see invest if they like what you're doing. Mine, yeah. Right. And, uh, but I work very hard at making myself available to fans so I can actually have a conversation with them. And so, you know, a publisher will just be like, well, you know, we didn't sell 100,000 books, but Sam is a really, really active author. And she goes and does a lot of events, and we consider that and if a the, good return. So you had asked originally, like, what would be the benefit of going with a traditional publisher if you have access to, um, you know, self-publishing means that mm -hmm. are being lucrative? I think the real answer to that is... Um, if you're prolific mm -hmm. and you're looking to build um, some empire. relationships, what mm -hmm. were you saying? What? <laughs> an empire. An empire. Well, no, not an empire, <laughs> but some relationships. Uh, and you want to um, publish work that is outside of your specific focus at the shows. So I'm looking at other publishers right now <clears> for <throat> a few projects that I'm doing who I know go different places more often that the work that I'm doing could fit with them and the labors that they do mm -hmm. would yield results and then I could do right. my thing for also other projects. physically physically yeah. yeah yeah we have we're getting so many you especially you have 16 published titles right I have four or five I don't know it's growing I can't bring that many books to shows I have to kind of concentrate on the newest one. Right. Yeah. But if I start to build these relationships with publishers, with distribution, yeah. and they can start taking my back catalog and still getting those out in the world while mm -hmm. I'm only concentrating on the one or yeah. two. And then it comes back to what writing is for, right? You write so that it can be read. So yeah. if yeah. you can carve out a little space where you can have a living, then you can also widen that to a, um, uh, you know, a, philosophical idea that yay everyone should read the work yeah um but the two are not you know the one doesn't give way to the other very easily mm -hmm. you have to work hard to s create that space and i would maybe finish out that thought by saying doing it both ways allows you more accessibility just what you were talking about physically existing in other markets that you otherwise wouldn't be able to access through the convention circuit like for example your baby metal work that's in a completely different market you had never been in before and Correct. had never yeah. invested any yeah. kind of like physically going there because you couldn't really access it yeah. before and now you will be able to because yeah. of a publishing deal that 1, you have. 500 people showed up yesterday to like a photo that I posted of it and that was you know I was like hey guys I don't know where you guys were but I'm <laughs> glad you're here yeah. thank you so much for liking it you're right it opens up a different mm -hmm. uh, model and demographic. I have a question for you Sam mm -hmm. um, your point of sale game is pretty strong did that come from trying like getting into these events yourself or from being a published author and having to go you mean her table skills yeah like, yeah. like table and, and selling to, to people in person mm -hmm. dear listener we've watched Sam Work the table, as we say. <laughs> and it is just this year that I have started doing it. Yeah. That's just, you've never, you never did that before? I did it very sparsely oh, on behalf natural. of other publishers because I worked for, like, for example, I worked for Cheesine and they would sometimes go to um, writing conferences, much different than conventions because it's a very small conference room where there's a bunch of dealers and most of them are selling books. So you're all selling books at the same time. But now I'm actually ingratiating myself more in comic cons and in smaller local craft shows. And, uh... Sorry, you wanted to ask how I sort of jumped into that? Well, yeah, I guess my question was, um, yeah, how did you start doing that? And it's, it's through publishing. Mm -hmm. I, so I wanted to point out how, um, like, going to Comic-Cons and slinging your own stuff, you're going to be expected to do that stuff when you get picked up by a publisher. Those, that skill set is required. Yeah. yeah. In both paths, right? It like is the publisher wants you to have people they, skills. And yeah, they want you to have people skills, but also, for example, my publisher really doesn't do comic cons because they don't, they're, they're like a literary publisher, right? They're going to festivals mm -hmm. and those kind of things, which take, which are 
adjudicated so it's really hard to get into them you have to apply to get into them um, as a guest because they're paying for these people to come um, which is very different from a con so when I you know came to them uh, with my first book and, and, you know, cheesing work under my belt, I had discovered, hey, there's this whole other thing, which is Comic-Cons. So I do that all on my own. Um, I just kind of, my publicist phones me and they're like, where are you going and what month and what weekend? And I literally give them my schedule. Um, you know, I'm doing FanQuest on June 23rd and 24th. Um, I'm doing a local craft market. I'm doing Icon. And then I'm doing, in September, all every single weekend, there's a Fan Expo or something like that. And they're just like scribbling it down madly because they don't really do that. We're like creative mutual funds for them. Yeah. Right? You know, they put in a little bit of effort and they get all this bonus. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. So I, um, you're an author who uh, sends query letters and sends out, you know, lots yep. of contacts to reach out to other publishers. I've been doing that a lot this year too. And I find that adding that list of shows, like just to say like, oh, I'll be doing 25 events or oh, I do 30 events mm -hmm. a year. Um, even if the response is no the work is not right for us it usually also contains you do how many you do what and they start asking this, you and they're yeah, like what they're, they are um that this is increasingly being perceived as a huge level of added value mm -hmm. to the publisher yes that your boots on the ground somewhere doing yes stuff. because to a publisher they're very limited they're like oh you do a reading oh you're going to be at a reading series oh you're going to appear at chapters and then to us it's like no Every single weekend, I'm setting up a table with my display materials and promo materials. So, like, I'll put out postcards and I'll put out information. And for me, my sequel is coming out in September. So, um, I'm spending a lot of my time hand-selling the first book and then handing out a postcard with it saying the sequel's coming out in September. And then after September, it's going to be, here's the sequel. Um, and I pay the money to order the books from my publisher and have them shipped to me and I take them with me on my travails and um, you get an author discount though I get listener. an author I get an author discount but 40% off on a $20 book my margins are very thin so I have to consider that this is all promotional value that I'm getting and people are already you know on my social media being like I'm excited to see you at this show I'm excited to see you at that show people who I haven't been able to access um, yet but I'm just starting to because people People are paying attention and they want to meet the author at whatever event that they possibly can. Um, so like for example this year um, I was contacted by author Kristen Sicarelli who wrote The Last Namsara and she and I are both guests at HalCon. I've never been to HalCon before. It's a I've, great show. Yeah and I've never been to the East Coast to do any promotion and she was like oh so we're both guests at HalCon. Do you want to do a maritime tour? Because she also hadn't been on the East Coast either and having two authors is better than one so now we're going to be in New Brunswick and PEI um, preceding the show and kind of meeting people we otherwise would be able to she's from um like Thelma and Louise but with books yeah we're not going to kill ourselves at the end though <laughs> we are going to drive to our respective homes to see our families afterwards um but uh you know taking that chance and doing it on our own so we are setting up we are looping in our publicists but we're like setting up these events pitching ourselves to them um to kind of front these appearances on an in an area that we've never been before and we're taking the time to do that ourselves um you know you can go to your publisher and you can be like hey i want to do a tour and they'll be like okay do it then uh because right. you're not their only author <laughs> yeah um they it must be like winning the lottery for them having somebody that'll actually do it on their own it steam is. Right? it is and again that's kind of what comes harkens back to the comic-con thing you're doing it on your own steam in a market that they don't necessarily understand or don't have the time to invest in so you're kind of testing it for them and uh they're just kind of helping you get there let's not get caught what are you talking about let's keep going what do you mean? Go! You sure? There's a through line here too, I think. For all of the stories we've all shared today, I realize that we're all mm -hmm. trying things that we haven't done before. Mm -hmm. um, things that just aren't haven't been done it's all kind it's, of new yeah, territory sometimes new it's ground. things that haven't been done so we're trying it sometimes it's things we haven't done so we're trying it um and if you're listening to this wondering you know should i take that shot should i try that yes make an informed decision about giving it a shot don't mm -hmm. you know uh gamble all of your grocery money on it but 
perhaps uh, some of your time. Yeah, I mean, know? these are all decisions that are made with the intent of spreading your word, your golden word of your writing, your stories, your artwork, getting out to people who uh, you normally wouldn't have access to and developing the roots to get there in the most economical way. And uh, yeah, like Greg said, do not just dump thousands of dollars on shows um, when you have one book. I waited until I had at least three things I could put on a table if, because I had one book and then all of a sudden this year I've had like two to add to that. And now I have more that I can reach out to people with to make the investment a little bit more worth it. Um, I and I've been biding my time because for years people have been like, "Why don't you go to comic cons?" And it's like it's just not economically sound for me now. Um, at that point, and now it is, and uh, the return I've seen has been really excellent. Now I'm not just talking financial return; I'm also talking the social and the um, the reader return. Yeah, it takes a while to get that portfolio to a point that yeah, it makes sense to to do more than just like the local little events. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's that we've talked about it before the 80, 20 rule of economics, you know, 80% of your cash comes from 20% of your return customers. So if you hoping to take the leap from your job into another thing, you need to be, uh, another way to look at that is 80% of people you encounter, you may never speak to again. They won't be interested. They won't stick around. Um, so if you go into it with that yeah, mindset of that, like 80% of these people I'll probably never see again, it can help you with that nervousness of why am I doing this? What's happening? Like they're not coming back and the mm -hmm. 20% that like it, they'll really like it. So, yep. and even if you don't like do well at a show or you don't meet your goals, there's always something that you can learn from that experience to leverage you the next time. Uh, the things that you hear people talking about that they want to see, you can always bring that to your table the next time. And again, focus on in when you're starting out doing the local shows because you have somewhere free to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, those smaller shows, while they may be smaller, um, it means that you're going to have more people coming to your table again and again. Um, and the table rates will be cheaper. Like these are all things that you do have to consider um, but don't get discouraged if, you know, you do a show and you only make $100. Um, you know, you've made $100 and you've also had some really good interactions with people that can turn into sales in the future. And don't be tricked by an outlier. If you do a show and you're like, oh, I made five grand. That's incredible. I should quit my job immediately. You can't live off $5,000. That might just have been a spectacularly good show for you that one time mm -hmm. because of a whole bunch of incomparables. You need to have a steady trend of visiting shows and earning X in order to expect yeah. Y. And can I, can I ask how much you made at your first show, Greg? My very first show. Your very show. first show. What are we qualifying as a show? Like, you had a table that you had to pay for. Had, a table, okay, you okay. did a display, you presented your stuff, and you sold it. Uh, the ver I made $1,000 at my shit. very first show. Wow, um, but that's a great start. I made one hundred and eighty dollars. Uh, oh, what show was it? C four two thousand eight. Wow. Yeah. Ten um, years later, now look at him. <laughs> yeah, now look at him. Now we, we can were, barely we're, see him. We're looking. The at shine him. is so bright. <laughs> yes. The shine is so bright. But um, I'll quantify that thousand dollars by saying it was labor that we had put in a lot of effort into. It was at a uh, man. It was KeyCon. It was related to a. Um, independently produced science fiction pilot that was being like there had been a bunch of hype about what are these guys doing so when I showed up with some of my work there too it was I think more people picking up to be like I wonder how wonder if it'll fail let's take a look at what's gonna fail <laughs> also dear right? listener KeyCon is a Winnipeg convention so your costs were much less oh, yeah, than yeah. they would yeah. have been to travel to right. ship all of your stuff keeping so in you mind that that thousand dollars is yeah it is the money you make because we're not talking about what you earn, but what you earn less your expenses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I right? shared a table with James Gillespie, so I think it was $25. It was like $50 a table back then or something like yeah. that. It was, yeah. So um, if I had had to travel somewhere mm -hmm. um, and pay a table fee. And pay accommodations. And pay accommodations, then I would have made $0. Eat out every night. And yeah. ship your stuff and to And ship you. my stuff well, to that mm -hmm. location, I would have made $0 in the balance. So yes. the fact that I did it locally allowed me to the first that. time you guys traveled was it a bit of a risk or did you you were fairly confident in your existing numbers and setup that you knew you weren't going no to risk. lose money totally yeah, yeah. yeah. risk sam yeah total risk i did yeah. emerald city comic-con in seattle whoa emerald i didn't city i was yeah. i was in the red totally yeah. in the red um but 
it, but you were also in Seattle. But I was. It was a hell of an experience because I just. I had one third of a table, in fact, because I shared with someone, and there were people running up to the table, going, "This is the book I was telling you about. I took this book out of the library. I already own this book. I can't wait for the sequel." And I had never been to the states before, um, and I had so never wait, traveled to any con before. This was my first out of town third, con. They saw two feet of space with your name on it and recognized it out of the thousands of people there at the show. yeah and they would come like just to my table and you heard uh, it here first people yeah and that go. was very shocking because i knew that i was selling books in the states because my book is distributed in uh canada the u.s and the uk um, but i hadn't seen that really direct reader i had seen it from like librarians when i went to book expo last year as a guest and was just kind of pitching the book to them and they were very excited and very kind and again thank you to the the american library association and other other libraries who have supported the book uh, incredibly um but i had never seen that actual fundamental reader reaction just from having the books face out on a giant tower and i sold out of and that yes. i brought i brought you know just one box but i sold them all um, my first, and that was my first out of town outing. And no, I, and I was in the red, but I learned a lot from it. And, and your heart was full. My heart was full, but my wallet was not. Yeah. And we're not being, I'm not being facetious there. Like, if you go and you didn't make money, but you saw all of these other incomparables, mm-hmm. that can be an indicator of success too, as long as that is what you're hoping for. Yeah. If you um, are only in it for the dollars at the beginning, you're going to be full of bitter disappointments. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a road it takes a long, before. Yeah, yeah, it's a long road to build up to solvency. Also, we, I, don't, I don't do this full-time. Right, I right. also work. I also have a job as a full-time publishing freelancer. So I have clients that I draw an income from. So I was able to take that risk. It's like Greg was talking about, your safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, I don't have to do the outro now that I think about it. That's right. Did you have anything to add there, Justin? It seemed like you were going to add something at the end. No. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am the queen of this podcast this week, <laughs> and I thank my two guests that came to my podcast um, for, uh, for their candor, for their very completely varied um, discussion on how genre gets made. So join the fight and make comics.